Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Welcome to our Mehfil. I'm your host, Amrita Ghosh. Let me set the mood for this Mehfil by reciting this beautiful couplet composed by Uday Bansal. Tumhari taal se betal, dunya tumhari shok se gafil hai. Takalluf chhod bhi do, aao, ye tumhari hi mehfil hai. This roughly translates as, cast aside your inhibitions and be a part of our celebrations. Our episode today is called Dalit Gastronomy, Caste and Cuisine. And we will talk about food, water, and foodways with an eye towards caste and how its structures are enforced in India. Food is often seen as celebratory and as a source of cultural pride. But today we focus on the pain and violence it wreaks upon Dalit communities across the board. I have two exciting guests today, Rajeshri Gudi and Ari Gautier, who come to this topic in very different ways. Originally from India and based in the Netherlands, Rajeshri Gudi wears many hats. She's an artist and anthropologist who works across mediums such as art, photography, ceramics, and writing. She creates powerful installations that document Dalit resistance in the everyday. Ari Gautier is a Francophone Indo-Malagasy writer with half black, half Dalit heritage. He's based in Norway and his novels and poems often depict Dalit black experience in post-colonial French India. Welcome to the studio, Rajeshri and Ari. Hi, Amrita. Hi. Oh, hi, nice to meet both of you. Nice to meet both of you too. So we all come to this episode with an awareness that the oppressive caste system in India is one of the most enduring, violent and pervasive forms of apartheid and segregation. But many are less aware of the fact that food is an instrument for furthering this kind of violence and discrimination. Could you speak about this idea, perhaps even from personal experience, if you wish to share? Rajeshri, you first. Sure. Well, I guess food, I, I see food as a sort of instrument of power everywhere, not just in India. But um, I do think that the caste system has a very specific way of utilizing food or broadly say food culture um, to sort of keep the caste system itself alive. And this is present not only in writing, so say in ancient Hindu texts where there will be certain rules uh, according to you know what you can eat, what you can't eat, but also who can you eat next to? Um, and do you purify or pollute the other person if you're eating in the same space as them? Um, all of these things sort of combine and, and um, build up to uh, really sort of drive the caste system forward in a way just by policing all of these everyday things. And I think food is a, quite an essential um, part of this control. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with Rajeshri also. 
I would like to add, like other etiquettes that we put on people or communities, food is also identity. Mm -hmm. And when food becomes identity, and that's where problem starts, because then who is eating what becomes, what you eat, you, you become what you eat. And you identify according to your food habits and your culinary tradition. And, um, and of course, when we focus on the lit gastronomy, and of course, we always talk about uh, <laughs> the famous non-vegetarian and non-vegetarian, I don't think that is a proper word to say. I mean, I, I am totally against using the word non-vegetarian. And uh, so for me, when it comes to food as identity, we um, I mean, mainly I'm talking about personal experience, I would say, like uh, Pondicherry, you know, and uh, it's a divided city. It's a divided colonial city between white town and black town. So the black town, what they call each and every streets has his own caste. So street was based only on caste. There's a Chetia street, there's Vaishal street, there's a Komutu street and Mudriya street, so on. So when you navigate in these streets, you know exactly who is eating what, and you, Alparia, you can't, uh, you can't live in those areas because people will always put you on that label of meat eaters. Mm. So that that violence, that social violence, uh, which is also combined with the the urban structure, is quite uh, quite interesting, and also very 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 psychologically very violent. Right. Um, this is really fascinating because both of you are also talking about spaces and purification and what become sources of purity and impurity. And it's a quick follow-up I have for um, you, Rajeshri. I know you worked on water and, you know, um, this absolutely important historical uh, event that almost has receded in erasure, the Mahatsatyagraha. And you've um, done an installation, I believe, on that. Would you like to talk about that uh, historical event and what you've done on it? Sure. I mean, I, I sort of, I started looking at food and water um, at the same time, really, because um, I guess I'm not necessarily interested in the food particularly or the water particularly, but really like how people um, have relationships with food or have a relationship with water. And why does our position in the caste system really make these relationships very tenuous or um, uh, much deeper than, say, just quenching your thirst or filling your stomach with food? Um, and I think uh, an event like the Mahat Satyagraha, which was uh, essentially Dr. Ambedkar and thousands of other people walking to this town called Mahad and drinking water from its main water tank. Um, as an event, that was the gesture. Mm -hmm. um, but it led to a huge sort of uprising because this water tank, even though it was in the center of the village, everybody was allowed to drink water from it except the Dalit people. 
Um, so just this act of uh, going here and drinking water from it, I, uh, yeah, I just, I've always found that uh, event sort of quite significant in our community history, but also just the fact that it's based on such a basic gesture of just mm -hmm. drinking water. Um, and I think when we're talking about our food culture, all of these, um, yeah, like, like what you said, Ari, like you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens when you are only supposed to eat this or drink this? And what happens when you, you defy these rules a little bit? Um, that's sort of what a lot of no, my... I, I, I totally agree with you because I saw your fantastic installation of glasses. Right. Water. No, beautiful. And that takes me back, the access to water. And mm -hmm. I say, you know, living in those uh, upper caste areas, mm -hmm. uh, I can't go and drink my, in my neighbor's house. Yeah. We, we used to play together. All the kids we used to play uh, on the streets, on the tinai, on the verandas, everything. And those kids, they won't come and ask water in my house because we have yeah. And I can't go and ask water from them, you know. Mm -hmm. And then again, it reminds me of the glass, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and even if I, if they come and drink in my house, they will never put their lips, they yeah. never put their mouth in my glasses. So mm -hmm. they will always drink from, you know, the way you drink. So, you know, the pollution, again, the, the, the body, uh, the touch of, the, of your body to the right. vessel itself. Mm -hmm. It shows that our, our the conviviality is not there. Yeah, and it's also so normalized in ways, right? I mean, we've grown up in many cases um, with a, a specific dish or a, a glass kept aside for certain people, and that is not supposed to be mixed with the other kind of normative utensils in the kitchen. I mean, it goes on with a certain kind of normalization in the everyday. You're, you're right, Amrita, because you know, for example, if by any chance, they give me water, hmm. we have a certain glass. Yeah. Wow. The glass with others. Unbelievable. Right. Rajeshri, um, you've said in an article that there is no Dalit cuisine, but instead there are these diverse and wide-ranging culinary traditions forged from years of oppression. Can you tell us a little bit more? And I know that you're working on, again, these fascinating food installations and a Dalit recipe book. So when we talk about a Dalit culinary tradition, are you referring to an embedded resistance in creating tr these traditions that are not found historically anywhere else? I think what I meant um, when I had sort of said this thing was exactly like there's no one specific Dalit cuisine because there are millions of us across uh, India and uh, all of our food is region specific and um but also i think when i said that i was quite wary of um not exoticizing our food culture um and i think that that happens with you know indian food all the time and that's sort of what it means almost to cook indian food in a in a foreign place is to sort of exoticize uh, your own culture or something. And I um, I remember when I first started like 
my research on this and started making artwork around it. Um, it was also a ploy to sort of get people to um, be more involved in figuring out sort of the nitty gritties of caste um, with something as sort of palatable as talking about food. Mm-hmm. Um, but also being conscious about the fact that this, just because I'm talking about food doesn't mean that, oh, now you can cook from it and cook it yourself and think that you are having a Dalit experience yeah. uh, just because you're eating this food. Yeah. Um, I was really sort of conscious of um, questioning these things, but also questioning like, what is Dalit food? So say you and I are, you know, three of us are eating the same meal. Uh, the food is going to be the same, but I think each of our experiences of eating the food will be different. Right. And that will be based on our past memories, past experiences, our family experiences, even if we're all eating the same thing. And I think that's what I meant by sort of, there's no one Dalit cuisine or food. Right, right. I want to quickly um, follow up on that and then come back to Ari. But I was reading this um, interview by Shahu Patole where he discusses exactly what you're saying here, Rajeshri, that, um, you know, he has, he mentions Dalit food from the Mahar and the Mang communities in Maratavada villages in India. Um, and how they're different from other Dalit cuisines in India. So there's not uh, this one exotic type of Dalit food. Um, and Patole says that these traditions and recipes are based on a region where what people can access. We both talk, all of us talked about accessibility. Ari, you mentioned the access to what you uh, had. And it changes from place to place. And yet Dalit food gets essentialized. And what you mentioned by exoticizing, getting associated with certain kinds of food choices. Beef, for example. What do you both think of that? Well, of course, you know, when we talk about Dalit or untouchable cuisine, uh, it's always referred to to the beef. Mm. We come back to the main dish, which is uh, which uh, which is a what you call the the cliche of uh, Dalit cuisine is the beef, mm. because people work with the carcass and everything. But um, and then again, it's what is interesting. The Dalit Hindus, they, they they can eat beef. I'm, I'm talking, for example, I'm t- saying again, because we are talking about regions mm-hmm. and places. For example, in, in Pondicherry, the Dalit Hindu, the Hindu Dalit will eat beef, but never eat pork. But the Catholic Dalit will eat pork. Right. So that's what is, what is fascinating. Then mm-hmm. again, inside one community, because of religion, because of conversion also you have access to another uh, again forbidden or degradable food mm-hmm. then comes again that prejudice it's not, it's not anymore the, the beef eater it also becomes a pork eater so you know uh, it, it's quite um, interesting and fascinating I'm sure as an anthropologist Rajeshri can um, can uh, I think can analyze or can see how that works. Yeah, I mean, my anthropology days are long behind me. <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> I mean, I can with personal experience, you know, like I'm from Maharashtra and uh, my family is Buddhist and most of our community, Dalit community there is Buddhist and uh, we've completely sort of given up uh, beef eating as a community mm-hmm. a lot and also meat eating a like considerably i would say um but that was also because of the buddhist vows that we've taken uh it does say not to sort of harm other beings and this is not necessarily a brahmanizing of our community but sort of looking at it just from the aspect of non-violence mm-hmm. um so there there are all of these very like interesting uh aspects of our dalit food culture now and i think i think this essentializing happens mainly because we just don't have enough research now like i remember when i was in the us and i was just reading about african american food culture and i just i remember going to the libraries and just finding so many books on african american food culture and we do have some in india and it is growing uh but i think there then there is scope for so much of study within this mm. and i think it's a main reason for that is access to literacy like our communities only got access to literacies <laughs> literacy like much later than the rest of india and um that's also what i'm sort of interested uh in when i make these little, like recipe books because it's really the act of writing that i'm interested in um we weren't able to write down our recipes for a number of reasons one we could not write <laughs> um we uh if you like assume that you're going to have so many ingredients you have to have a big functioning kitchen you have to have all of these things so a recipe book and also the documentation of our cuisine um needs a lot of these basic things that we just haven't been allowed access to and this is It's interesting that tradishri sorry amrita no, no since we're talking about um Uh, book uh, i'm yeah. also uh, i'm also i studied that that project uh, last week i got the approval of um, the investors that they could, they're going to invest in my next project mm-hmm. which is writing a coffee table book about pontchartrain cuisine mm. so this is a, uh, this is fascinating this is beautiful because i'm very very excited because i've been writing working on food as a culinary memory because of the changing the, the change of the society and mainly pondicherry as a touristical destination yeah mm-hmm. this nation and there are more and more things com- coming up from outside i i'm not saying that's that there is a pure pondicherry cuisine no i'm not saying i'm not going the purity aspect of thing but uh, we're talking about memory so my as a child as a franco pondicherry what is my memory of the pondicherry cuisine that's mm. what i'm right yeah, and right. most of the most of the cuisine it's again because franco pondicherry 90% of the pondicherry franco pondicherry who became french are mm. from the paria community i was going to ask 
ask you this about um, the pariah community specifically, Ari, and you've referred to yourself as a, a pariah. You're of mixed origin. From, you were born in Madagascar in Africa and uh, lived in Pondicherry. And being half black, you have certainly experienced the many shades of India's discrimination, right? And food is certainly something that you touch upon in your fiction. How do you write about caste and food in your fiction? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't write very explicitly saying this is Pania food or Dalit food. But mm -hmm. um, since my first book, Kanisukud Lakshmi, I already start to write about uh, the Pondicherry cuisine and mainly about Dalit food. So this dog, the three-legged dog who pretend to want to be a guru, uh, instead of eating sattvic food from the Sri Aurobindo ashram, is going to eat in a gourmet restaurant because he's also gourmet. Because we, we should talk about not the, the Dalit food as something very derogatory, but it's also the, the fine food, the gourmet food, mm. you know, the delicacy, the delicatesse. So, Skarni Sakhalakshmi already started to write about the the food, and also it, it continues on the Thinai Thinai. It's again a, there is a place where my uh, the, the the domestic Lourdes, uh mm. she brings out food, and this Thinai uh, book is it's happening in a fisherman area. It's a Dalit area, but the mm. kind of food which is served is the most decadent food you can ever find. You know, from Buddha till uh, charcuterie, I mean, uh, sausages, and all kind of uh, French, Pandicherian delicacy. So mm. everything is served with Vietnamese food. So, and uh, then in 2021, my last book, Nukchum Pondicherry, I'm also talking about Dalit food and also the Muslim food. Because mm. again, that's also another aspect of we are trying to, you know, uh, portray as something taboo. So mm -hmm. no, I've been I've been writing about I'm very much interested in food and caste. Mm -hmm. And mostly the third book I explicitly say that how caste is also fully associated with caste. Mm -hmm. So this is very interesting and you know Rajeshri you were mentioning that you know we don't tend to think about the access to a recipe book whose recipe books are you know out there in a certain kind of dominant way and how do we even think about writing down recipes which also comes with a certain kind of power dynamics and are you just mentioned about this kind of um, food being considered derogatory or a decadent sort of um, trope and people also tend to think about food and debate about authenticity right in India um, I mean we mentioned beef which obviously has its own discourse of the complete anti-Brahmin food in that kind of discourse, right? And uh, that Brahminical culture generates this discourse of purity and when it comes to food and how to eat the food, which also Rajeshri mentioned. And I've spent many years in Sweden uh, where blood pudding or blood sausages are this everyday children's food served in the school. Whereas this is considered something, you know, not so great, and in many fancy restaurants, the most expensive restaurants we can think of, it is proudly served, things made out of blood or tripe or thinking about whole grain bread, forage, shrubbery. 
and so on. So how can we urgently combat these kinds of prejudices also? Um, I think it's not really about the food, is it? It's, um, it's, it's I think the prejudice is cast uh, here where it's not, I mean, we know through, you know, records in ancient texts that, that at some point, Brahmin people did eat beef. We know that we we have evidence of this and, and this change. So it's not like from the moment, you know, they were created or something that they all, were always followed a vegetarian cuisine. This was developed mm -hmm. over time due to what was happening mm -hmm. uh, in the subcontinent at that time. Um, and I think that's, uh, I guess, something that's... Uh, quite important I think for Ari I, I think so too is just um, our relationship with the food rather than the food itself like I I'm pretty sure you know a person from India from an upper caste who maybe goes to Sweden will sort of maybe get used to um, maybe not eating these blood sausages but seeing them around and getting used to it Mm -hmm. But uh, in India, they do have more power mm -hmm. and uh, they have more control, therefore, on like what they can uh, feel is uh, pure or impure. Right. But as an aside, um, I have to say that um, I've written about my caste experience in Sweden um, and it's another story for another day. But, you know, yeah. people of South Asian origin would stop and say, What's your last name? Which caste you're from, and so on and so forth. So even outside India, it caste operates in very specific ways, right? About identity constructs and so on. Definitely. And you know, Amrita, as you uh, the, the the question about how to how to fight against yes. this kind of um, notion of uh, eating this. I would, I mean, shamelessly happy and proud to say I'm eating five-star food every day. <laughs> <laughs> you see, uh, be that um, uh, Buddha blood pudding or tribes or intestines, whatever the five stars are rating with a higher price, I'm eating that every day. So, you know, I, I can proudly say that, uh, yeah, I'm eating gourmet food every day. <laughs> right. And... Rajesh, I want to come back to your work and your photographs. And you kind of mentioned um, what you're aiming to do. It's not just the food, but what the associations of the food are. Um, and your exhibits on food often contain personal family photographs on eating and um, pictures on food and people literally eating, which we don't usually see so much. Why is it important to focus on these pictorial food memories um, and how does this impact representation of Dalit people and food in very specific ways? Um, I think the photographs go along with my interest in sort of Dalit memoirs and autobiographies as spaces for learning about many aspects of Dalit culture, including food. So a lot of my food research is through autobiographies, not necessarily through interviews or something. It's really about like what has has um, somebody from my community already written, and where can I um, 
how can I go through what's written and then pull out uh, these aspects of food? And once I put it together, maybe it'll form something quite substantial. Um, and so that's been an exercise. So every time I read a Dalit autobiography, I sort of mark uh, bits where the writer's talking about food. And then I kind of convert it into a recipe. Um, so that's how I sort of compile the recipes. And it was allowing me these, um, I guess you're delving into a family. Each time you're reading these autobiographies, you're going into a person's, you know, intimate life, their family, their community. And uh, it did help me learn a lot more about my community mm -hmm. uh, than what I could in school and things like that. Um, and in that way, I also wanted to involve my own family story and not just look at it as um, personal photographs, but maybe because, um, you know, like writing, access to technology, like cameras, uh, has not been very common in Dalit communities. Like now with the smartphone and things, you know, you're able to document yourself exactly how you like. Um, but I think in the 70s, 80s, there were very few Dalit families that had cameras. Mm -hmm. And um, because my family did have a camera, we were able to photograph ourselves however we wanted. And I think that's what I was interested in. Like, you know, if you have a camera, how are you going to photograph yourself? And um, as with many family photos, they're taken around happy occasions and happy occasions equal eating. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that was sort of why uh, I wanted to bring these out um, to sh show that yes, like Dalit food does have a lot of trauma behind it, but it also has a lot of joy, mm -hmm. uh, and it is a a very big complex experience that you can't just put in one box. Like you can't just say Dalit food is beef or you can't just say Dalit food is this or that. Like it, it is so many different things. And as uh, our communities are getting more access to different ways of documentation, more of these stories are coming out. Mm -hmm. Um so the family photographs were really just a strange way of putting my own family story into this big food history um, and just, yeah, being part of it. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, I don't know Ari, if you've seen them, but they're absolutely. I, I mean, Rajeshri, you know, you, you're putting ideas in my, in my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, because when you talk about photography and food and archival material, that's what it is. I'm telling stories through photography um, uh, because of, uh, I'm talking here, the colonial experience, because uh, we were under French colony and my father was the first one who went to France already in 1919, or something like that. So he had already access to camera those days. Yeah. So we have food archival material in the family from 1940s. Amazing. You know, and in different part of the world, then again, this is the colonial mobility. Right. Uh, from Algeria to Vietnam to Madagascar, we have uh, archival material from uh, food eating. And then 
again my family because my cousins my 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 the rest of the family they went to tahiti they went to somalia they went to djibouti so we have food archival material from different part of the the the, the colonial imperial uh, uh places where these people were posted mm. so you know now you you were given a new idea maybe you i are sitting on a gold mine you have to do something with it <laughs> <laughs> you know all this all this joy of eating you yeah. know from different different places and with different cuisine and combining all this like for example when they go to i remember my 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 one of my uncle was he was in tahiti and in tahiti they don't didn't have really all these masalas and powders and this and that so he will create something out of something and make a tahitian tahitian pondicherry cuisine mm. wow <laughs> right but you know since both of you are talking about this kind of global dimension also and we are literally looking at this historic moment in the US specifically with Seattle becoming the first city and i'm sure both of you know about this that brought a law against caste discrimination and there seems to be a little more done with awareness and publications um than before about caste however in india lynchings for beef consumption um have become commonplace as we know with these vigilante mobs targeting muslims and dalits do you think globally awareness of laws like this um indicate that something is changing or is it actually getting worse i mean we hear about stories of you know hiring and employment in the us also directed through caste dynamics all the time specifically the south asian the indian community I mean I would say Amrita it's it's a pull and push um uh, uh phenomenon you see the more we are getting more and more liberal liberated the more there will be a kind of resistance from the conservative side and vice versa so every time there is this kind of uh, things happening this the times of the pull and push thing and um right so it's 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 very interesting we can be happy that things are changing but all the same every time that we are happy we should not forget there will be something which be against our happiness mm. so it, it's uh, yeah so that is I was trying to find a quote but I can't find the exact quote <laughs> but um I think uh yeah this this push and pull like you said ari it's just going to it's inevitable mm-hmm. um but i think it was ambedkar or one of ambedkar's peers uh but he quoted it was that you know if indians go to other parts of the world they're going to take caste with them and uh it's inevitable that uh these things will happen um I don't know if it'll make that much of a difference in India though like I I I hope so um but it's a difficult question <laughs> because we don't see a way out of this right because it's 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 tragic but you know it the specters are haunting us every day and you know we don't I think see- empowerment of course I mean um and empowerment and also 
creating awareness uh, will be the most benefit thing to do. And by creating awareness, you also create a sense of tolerance, mm -hmm. you know, to accept the other one so what, for what he is. And again, we are talking about food as an identity. If, if I eat something different than you, and mm -hmm. if by awareness, you build up a tolerance that you also accept what, for what I am. True. I'm also thinking the concept of tolerance is a bit tricky because it kind of has a certain kind of hierarchization and it, I'm, sh I'm not very Absolutely. sure that the other is completely negated. The space of otherness is still there. In I don't know if I can articulate it properly, but tolerance itself is a sort of a complicated um, layered notion. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, this is completely happening with the push and the pull, right? Um, and I also don't know the answer to that. Um, but I want to gear us to talking about what Rajeshri mentioned before in terms of the kitchen and the access to uh, what Aryu mentioned, the, the ingredients, the masalas and you know, access to food itself and certain kinds of food. And any kind of conversation on food is automatically uh, sort of bringing us notions of gender and women's roles in the kitchen, um, their oppression in the domestic spheres. Would, would this also apply in the case of Dalit food cultures? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, I think we can't really speak about caste without gender either. And uh, uh, Ambedkar wrote a lot on sort of uh, um, the formation of castes having to do a lot with gender. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really, it does go hand in hand. But in terms of um, domestic spaces and domestic lives, it's quite difficult because I, I yes, I do think Dalit women suffer in different ways and probably more than Dalit men. Um, but in relation to an upper caste woman or, you know, I think gender, especially in India, can't be seen without the caste angle either. Mm. Um, and these food histories are, it, it is more complicated um, just because you don't have like the same access. So if, uh, you know, typically a Dalit family would not be able to even own land. And so they had to, uh, they couldn't grow their own food and vegetables. And, and um, so they would have to go out and work, including the woman, mostly like the woman doesn't have the luxury in uh, a Dalit household to be at home um, and has to go out and work as well as probably cook as well as do all of these things. And, and I think this was always a big part of our history. Um, and I wouldn't go so far as to say that like women are more liberated in these spaces or not. Like I don't, I think it's a much more complicated question, um, but it does definitely, you can't ignore the gender aspect. It's just not as black and white, I guess, or right. binary, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, patriarchy doesn't know caste, you see, and uh, it, it applies from upper caste to lower caste. It, mm -hmm. it's more, uh, that, 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 that's it, you know, and um, 
I think first smash the patriarchy and then. <laughs> I think I'm also, also remembering, I think this is classic Gadri Spivak's, you know, gendered subaltern, right? Whose voices are heard and, you know, whose histories are created in a certain kind of um, discourse that gets dominance. Uh, but I want to come back as we are getting closer to the end of the episode. I want to talk about something, Rajeshri, you mentioned um, that, you know, when you're documenting these photographs of your own family and, you know, the history, um, you mentioned happy occasions mean eating. And when we speak of Dalit food, it is impossible not to be subsumed by that trauma, scarcity, the pain of ongoing oppressive practices coming out of casteism. So this is also a space that is very complex, as you mentioned, um, of deprivation, of the trauma that goes on. And I also finished um, another episode um, of Mayfield in which we discuss food and literature in a very complex way. But it was more so situated in a comfortable space of nostalgia, family, happiness, and so on. And for both of you, um, we would love to know if there are some details on dishes that you fondly remember and like to cook or eat. Go for it, Ari. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you, you know, um, as I said, because uh, of uh, the Franco-Pondicherian experience, because they had access to a new religion, access to a new citizenship, to a new nationality, uh, my, my family, of course, econ economically, they got some empowerment. But uh, uh, um, because we come from outside Pondicherry, the south south of Pondicherry, where there's uh, the river, Aryangupam River, which is uh, one of the uh, biggest river in Pondicherry. So my father or my family always say that in, in when they were poor, they were talking about food scarcity, and uh, when they were poor, they didn't have money to buy food, they will go to the river and collect mussels. And that was their, uh, so that's what they could eat at that time. So even when we became little well-to-do economically, the only uh, uh, situation where we all get together is when the mussels come from the Ariangupam River once a month or twice a month or whatever. So the entire family will get together and we take out the, 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 the flesh from the, what do you call it, from the cookie? Uh, sorry for the French. And... Uh, and we, we, half of that will go into your mouth and half of that will go in a big dexa. So where are we going to make fried mussels and rasam and everything? So the entire family will sit together and have the same culinary memory they had 100 years back. So that was the, the moment of joy. So where everybody will be like 30 people sitting yeah. with like two big sacks of uh, mussels which is cooking and everybody will be sitting and eating and drinking. And my uncles will be once on side drinking sarayam, kallu or whatever it is. So it's the big feast. And I keep on, I keep on doing that, you know, and I'm, whenever I cook mussels, of course, now I'm, I'm a little more bourgeois. I'll put a <laughs> dash of Chardonnay inside. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. So um, 
I guess one of my like core food, I don't know if it's a memory, but um, and this is sort of related to an artwork I've done before, but uh, I've always never really enjoyed like sweet breakfasts and I've always enjoyed eating just like a main meal like lunch or dinner compared to and uh, as a kid I remember I would get very happy if we were just eating last night's leftovers for breakfast like that was what I wanted all the time and um, and my mom or my grandmother or something would just sort of like mix everything together and uh, heat it up and and give it to me and we called it ukadla and I thought it was just a common thing like okay what are you eating for breakfast oh I'll just have some ukadla mm-hmm. um, and I didn't think much about it I just thought okay it's last night's food from the fridge or whatever um, and then when I was reading baby Kambe's book called The Prisons We Broke uh, she uh, had written about this Dalit practice of uh, the beggar. I think it was quite interesting. From the Maharwada, there would be one person each week or so that would be chosen to be the main beggar of uh, the village for that week. And uh, so he would be walking or he would have the sort of privilege is a horrible word to use in this specific uh, case to uh, walk around the main village and collect arms Uh, and you would sort of gather it in one bowl or a bag that you had so everything would mix together and I think um, eating leftovers and and begging practices are very caste oriented that way Um, and then uh, you would bring all the food that was mixed together and you can't separate all of it. Like some of it might be going bad, some of it might be fresh, some of it might... And then you just mix everything together and you heat it up as much as possible and then you eat it. And that's what she called ukadla. And I was like, oh, I it was, it was quite fascinating but also very sad to like recognize this because obviously when I read Dalit autobiographies I know that I'm learning about my history and um, but I've never faced uh, sort of first-hand caste discrimination Mm -hmm. and I've had a very happy childhood Mm -hmm. Um, so I've always seen it sort of as a duty to learn more and more about these things but this direct reference to Ukkadla made it all very like close to home. Right. And uh, yeah, I still enjoy eating last night's food. Um, but now this, I guess this recognition that it uh, it stems from this food practice that is casteist in nature that's uh, been there. Right. Yeah. And it also kind of drives home the point that you're making. It's not the food that one is associating or eating with, but what it means historically, right? So that, that yeah. kind of up a larger source of everything layered. Um, exactly. But I'm going to end the episode with something that I am sort of um, in a moment um, at the risk of being completely critiqued and um, <laughs> at the risk of exoticizing itself. But is there, <laughs> is there a dish 
that's def definitely Dalit cuisine that the world should taste that you both can speak about? Hmm. Uh, for me, Go on, Ari. It, it's going to be the pork vindali. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Can you explain to us why you said that and what is that? Uh, pork vindali, uh, of course, vindali it is come from, it's a very Pondicherry dish, but it's, there is also in, uh, in Goa, mm. uh, there is also in Mangalore where the, the, the European came, but it comes from mostly from Portugal. Uh, uh, it's made vindai. It's wine, vinegar, and garlic. And uh, so there is uh, pork vindalu in Goa. Uh, the same thing in, in Mangalore. And uh, in Pondicherry, we call it pork vindali. For me, that is the ultimate killer. Nice. <laughs> I would say, I mean, I like it. But I'm not, I don't like sweet things that much. But Guravni is quite special, which is what you have with Puranpuri. And Puranpuri are like stuffed uh, jaggery sapatis. Um, and Guravni is actually also something I learned quite recently. Because I thought we just had Guravni with uh, Puranpuri. But it's, um, it's like watered down milk with spices. So you dip the puranpuri in it. Now, a, an upper caste or Brahmin person would normally just have puranpuri with milk because they can afford to. Mm. Um, but uh, poorer households would uh, mix the milk, like would water down the milk mm. just so that there's more and then put some other spices in there. Um, so I would say Gauravni is quite specific to uh, our culture and really tasty, yeah. Sounds delicious, actually. <laughs> um, I would love, love to thank both of you for this very rich conversation and um, thank you for coming to us today. And, thank you, Amrita. Uh, yeah, thank you. This was really nice and nice to yeah meet both of you and talk more about this. Nice for the first time, absolutely. <laughs> Rajeshree, now I'm, I'm already I'm, I'm a big fan of you, and now I'm going to follow everything that you do, and I'm looking forward for this. Um, I'm so excited about your uh, family photographs now. I'm very excited to see this uh, yeah, yeah. archive of yours. Yeah, let's do this together. It's really special. I mean, it. I think it is like quite. Um, important no i mean not as i don't say it as a heavy word but i think it's it's such a special uh relationship that you have with uh your community and and it's amazing to have documentation like we just most of us never had that documentation so it's so special that um you can enjoy that um yeah <laughs> And we also did not quite talk about the space of the camera, right? I mean, you so thank you for inspiring, inspiring me. Oh, nothing. <laughs> thank you to both of you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you.